Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. If you go to my website and you read the about section, you'll know that I went from a dropout to a doctoral student. Uh, sometimes I use the fun hashtag GED to PhD. Can't get it trending somehow. I bring that up because today's human is my friend Serene. We met when we entered the same PhD program together. We've spent hours across tables from each other at coffee shops in the doctoral lounge and other places with our laptops out, doing teacher work, doing work for our doctoral courses, and eventually dissertations. We call it nerding. And during these times, nerding, we weren't just doing work, we were really getting to know each other. I've had some of the best and most stimulating conversations of my life talking to Serene and our other nerding friend, Saquana. Shout out to Saquana. I think you'll like this episode for no other reason than uh, this is the first one where the equipment was really working well. There's a couple spots where one of my dogs, Jasper, is bumping into the table that has the mics on it. That's because if humans are present, he must be petted at all times. I also tried a little bit more editing this time, cutting out some of the ums and uhs, and working my way around some of the noises related to the dogs. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I know I enjoyed recording it. Remember to stay tuned after the interview for one of my riveting outros with some very important information, including how you can donate to the cause and help me pay for the equipment I bought. Okay, here's my interview with Serene. to Brian Talks to Humans. Folks, we're here from the BTTHHQ, which is a tiny apartment crammed in with my two dogs and my guest. Today's human is... Serene. All right. Uh, I'm really glad Serene could come here uh, tonight and record. I'm really grateful. Uh, she gets up at what, about 4.30 in the morning? Yep, 4.30. And her commute is what, like two and a half hours, something Not like that? Not anymore. It's only an hour and a half. If, you know, New Jersey Transit wants to do its main job. Well, either way, it's about 7.30 now, and she's been uh, at it since 4.30 in the morning, came straight here after work. I picked her up at the train station. She didn't even get a chance to go home and take a break. So um, we're really grateful that Serene was able to, to do this. I guess by we, I mean me and the dog, because who else could it be? So tell me about your intro music, uh, Erica Badu Rimshot. Anytime you want to set a vibe... Uh, you gotta go to Erica Badu's Rimshot. Uh, I came to hear the band today. Um, who doesn't want to get going and talking after hearing that? And, of course, hearing the Rimshot. Right on. Cool. So, Serene and I met, uh, when we were, uh, entered a PhD program together, as I'm, I probably have already said in the intro. What, uh, what drew you to that PhD program? When I was six years old, I already knew that I wanted to get a PhD. I just didn't know that was what it was called. And take it or leave it with Bill Cosby, his college sweaters really did something for me. So I made my dad after going to visit the land of make-believe. I made my dad, my stepmom, and my little brother drive me to Princeton's campus. My dad had to lug me over to the Princeton store and I had a little pink sweater with black Princeton lettering. 
And I think that was the start of my academic journey. I think, I, I don't know. It it was just my purpose. Right on. So uh, were you, you know, the smartest kid in the room at that age, like a lot of PhD folks tend to be? Or No, I think I was perceptive. And back in the day, they used to track kids. So I was one of the smartest kids in the room with a whole bunch of other smart kids. So we're going to get back to uh, your PhD work and what your dissertation's about and that sort of thing. I want to know about Serene before I met her. Hmm. You know, uh, we've talked a lot and and I know some of of it, but there's there's probably some stuff that uh, I don't know. So tell me about Serene growing up. I was a happy-go-lucky kid. I was the first grandchild on both sides. So my mom was 18, my dad was 23, just getting back from the Marines. And my parents met, fell in love, fell out of love. You know how that goes. Mm -hmm. Southern family. My dad knocked up my mom. They got married because that's what you did. Yeah, I I was very much, very well loved. I'm still very well loved and spoiled because I'm the first girl and the first grandkid. My grandma told me, I had, like, a million imaginary friends, so she had to buy me this Hello Kitty uh, tea set because I had, like, 23 friends, <laughs> friends, <laughs> in the backyard, and they, you know, they all had to have tea. <laughs> <laughs> so, growing up and uh, and with your imaginary friends uh, and, and your tea set, did, did you ever feel, like, not comfortable in your own skin, different in some way? A lot of a lot of folks who are sort of you know empaths or you know intelligent or you know like you said you know perceptive and intuitive you know have that feeling sometimes and don't know how to name it when they're young was that something that was true for you? Uh, I could say yes and no. I feel like when I was in elementary school, like a young young kid, like kindergarten second grade, everyone came to me at, at for advice. So. Um, yeah, kids always saw me as someone to go to for reason and, you know, good advice. I was always the person, so getting a little older, who was friends with everyone but friends with no one until about high school when I had a friendship group. But I feel like I moved around a lot and also, you know, it's great to get along with people, but it's hard to really find that niche when you get along with everybody. Mm, yeah. I remember you saying uh, before in, in uh, what was it, in junior high, middle school? Uh, you know, academic serene, six-year-old getting a PhD serene kind of took a took a turn. Yes, because peer pressure and hormones are real. And so, you know, I went from being a sixth grader whose teacher would read everyone's standardized test scores aloud because they were 98% and above. That was the average in the classroom. To being like a 74% tile student because I was more concerned with like what my crush was wearing Every day of the week. You made a chart, right? No, no. It was a calendar. Oh, okay. And then we had my best friend, my childhood best friend and I had corresponding calendars. The first was for the crush. And then the other calendar was to make sure we didn't wear like the same purple jeans two Wednesdays in a row. Because, you know, Cross Colors was out then. Oh, I remember Cross Colors. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, you would turn your pants backwards because Chris Cross was doing Mm. that. You know. So, priorities. Now... In in junior in junior high, were, I know you you've talked a little bit about this before. Is that around the age that you started to like develop faster than some other folks or fourth grade? Oh, even earlier, a fourth grader, um, in a small school where there is two grades per 
you know, per two classes, two classes per grade. Per grade. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you're in gym class with the sixth graders, and they want to be on your relay team. <laughs> not getting it, not getting the fact that boobs, you know, attract older boys. I was definitely not really hip to, you know, attraction from the opposite sex. Uh, how did you cope with that? How do you think that affected you? Well, I think it's twofold. I, I kind of cowered because, you know, I was I was in fourth grade and I started school when I was young, so maybe I was nine. So that was that was a lot. And also, I was raised with my dad. My mom was always really sick. And so my dad would tease me and tell me my shoulders were falling and ask me what was wrong with me. So I think I interpreted that negatively instead of like, oh, you're becoming a woman, you know? Mm-hmm. I was I was really timid about it. So um, around what age does mom pass? My mom passed when I was 23. So my first year teaching, mm-hmm. and I was actually away on vacation. I got a call that my mom had passed away, and I swore to myself that I wasn't going to care because she was sick. She abused drugs and alcohol, and she was a diabetic, and... When you have a parent going hiatus for months at a time, you kind of rationalize and say, well, maybe she's dead. And it would upset a lot of family members, but that's how I coped. Like I had, I was just very logical. And so when she passed away, I I was very surprised by my response, that I was saddened and that I mourned. And it was also hard because it was my first year of teaching and I was teaching a really hard to staff school. Mm -hmm. And my kids were so used to adults going in and out of their lives. And so no one told my students that my mom had passed away. And so they just thought it was another teacher that left them. Yeah, because my mom passed away on my spring break of my first year of teaching. And so when I came back a week later, aside from being sad that, you know, I just lost my mom and I took the week after spring break off, I had kids who arguably I should be consoling them and being there for them, hugging me. You know, because they were so used to taking on more than they needed to. Mm. Yeah. Um, so growing up with, with mom and, and her issues, what was that like? I always say for both my parents that I think when you hit the nail on the head, when you said, you know, being empathic and being a bit more mature at the time, I just said, you know, my parents are both good people. They're just not the best parents. Mm. With my mom... I had to take on that motherly role for my younger brothers and Mm -hmm. take on that understanding role that adults, like your parents, many people say your parents are superheroes, and I didn't see that. Right. Like, my parents didn't have kids. (laughs) They had, you know, they were real people, and I had to accept that at a very young age. So, uh, so you, so, um, uh, you know, so what was dad like when you were younger? My dad was always there. My dad was always there. I always knew who he was. He was caring and loving, but he really didn't know how to raise a little girl. And I have lots of brothers. So just aside, I have seven brothers. They're Mm. all younger than me. So he did really well with um, the boys, but not so much with a little girl and not so much with a little girl who had a mom that was absent, Mm. you know? And so it really did take a village to raise me. And my dad, he also has his own struggles and being a man and being a man who has a dad and a stepdad and a mom who, you know, like mm. he, he was living his best life the best way he could and trying to be present as a father, not really knowing what that role should be like. And so my dad was around, but I wish 
I had more quality time with my dad mm. growing up. Mm. And so you, you said takes a village. I think you, you said before you, you lived across several homes as a, as a kid. Yes. Mm. And so, huh, my parents divorced when I was one and a half. So I never knew what. I didn't realize it was that early. Yes. Well, okay. Let me let me clue you in on the Southern folk way. Okay. You knock up a woman, you're marrying her. Like, there's no such thing as a baby mama. We don't know what that is. Like, you have a wife. <laughs> and so my parents were young. Like I said, they were in love and then they weren't. And there was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they divorced. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm really grateful for my grandparents and my aunts and my mom and my dad. And so everyone did their best to take care of me. And because of that, I had sometimes four homes at a time because a lot of individuals were just trying to make sure that I was okay. How'd that work with like school? The most stable times was with my paternal grandmother because she and my aunts, my paternal aunts are like really the most stable parental figures that I had. But um, with my mom, for some reason, my dad never secured custody from my mom. So... I started second grade one place and ended second grade in another place. And I started, wait, fourth grade. I ended third grade in one place and started fourth grade at another place and then picked up fourth grade in another place and then ended fourth grade at the same place where I started fourth grade. So needless to say, (laughs) school, it was, it was, it was difficult. And my mom, because she was battling with substance abuse and yet she had custody when she was on. She was on. And when she was off, sometimes she still had the power to pick my brothers and I up, sign us out of school. And my parents would fight and my dad would cry at the main office because he had no power to not have us taken out. And, you know, there was one time I remember, I can't remember what grade it was. I was starting school or I was supposed to start school. And my mom had kind of run away from my brother's father because um, he was very abusive. And we were in a shelter for two weeks before school. And I will never forget my dad, like, his tears, like, his sorrow uh, when he finally found me. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a parent, but being so close to students as a teacher, I will never forget his face. That I can't imagine how distraught he was not knowing where I was. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I was in a shelter, even though I had, I had family, but my mom picked us up and we left and he didn't know and there were many times my mom just came in and picked us up and nobody else knew where we were we were going and neither did we and so I feel like that resiliency at the same time though like all right here we go here we go and you you just got to do what you got to do yeah I I can see that that resilience uh in you the serene that I know you know Mm -hmm. in the last seven or eight years so with all this going on, the multiple homes, the in and out of school, the mom with her issues, the dad with his issues, they're splitting up, all, all this, right? I know this is kind of an obvious question, but it's just a way for you to talk about it, maybe. Is that where you think you get some of your anxiety and, like, control stuff from, or...? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm a, sto- a stoic mess. So <laughs> I would always, especially when you're the eldest, so, you know, we're, we're smart folks, quote-unquote. And so we know birth order has something to do with how folks handle life's trials and tribulations. I was the eldest. I was also a woman, you know, or a young girl. And so I held everything in. With big fourth grade boobs. That's, hey now, (laughs) be on my relay team. But 
Yeah, but um, definitely, definitely, I held a lot in. And I think you can think of that image of like the strong black woman, right? Who's getting things done, not showing her weaknesses, taking care of everybody, but not really being able to fully express and take care of herself. I think that growing up, it it helped and it worked because I always say like it helped that I was I was book smart and I knew how to do school and I did school well. You know, I, I succeeded, but I think as an adult when, you know, there is no, you finish 12th grade, you finish college and you're like, well, shit, oops, excuse me. No, you, you can fucking curse as much <laughs> as you want. You know, shit, what am I supposed to do now? You know, college was rough for me. It was rough because you had to make decisions and you had to be a whole person that I didn't know how to do. I knew how to, I knew how to play the game and I knew how to get through what I needed to get through. But when it came to like defining who I was and making choices for what I wanted in my life, yeah, I was anxious because I was always responding, you know, mm. not innovating, not doing, not, you know, not putting myself forward. Surviving, not thriving? Surviving, not thriving. Okay. <laughs> So just to rewind a little bit, around 10th grade, you you move in full time with grandma? Yes. So crazy. My dad is a minister. And so he was living in the church parish. Somebody done came and broke into the house. It was a big house and it had like little gargoyle kind of things on the wall. And they had told all kinds of stories of what happened in the house. So I was shook. And so the house had a basement and a kitchen and upstairs and an attic. And so when they broke into the house, I'm like, I'm out of here. I can't do this. And my dad was, you know, he was pulled in a lot of places. He worked. He was a pastor. You know, he was someone who was really important in the community. So I was home by myself a lot. And so once the house was broken in, I told him, I was like, dad, I just want to go live with grandma. And yeah, like that was, that was the first time I really had a stable home. I lived with my grandma up through, you know, finish high school up through college. Mm. And we've talked a little bit about this. It was a pretty strict household. My grandma, let me tell you, my grandma, if she had the money and if she didn't have my dad early, she totally would have been a debutante. My grandma <laughs> is prissy of the priss. She has all the etiquette game down. Like my grandma is the deaconess of the year. And so we were raised super Christian, super not, you know, Southern white Baptist, but we were Southern black Baptists. And so, you know, it was, it was a strict Christian household and it was a strict black Southern Christian household. So. Tell me a little bit more about that. So what's, what's that like for people who don't, haven't lived through that or don't have friends who, from that background? Okay. First of all, you got the kids table. So you got the kids table and you got the grown up table. I say that, and I hope, you know, folks who are listening feel me on this. I say that because the kids table is is pretty much the new thing. Like you stay in your lane, you stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. And if grown folks are talking, you're not talking or looking. Okay. And so you, you do what you're told and you follow the expectations and that's because grandma said so. And that's the Southern way. And also because Jesus is watching. Mm, okay. It's very important. <laughs> so you, you have a lot of layers of expectations and rules and, you know, what you need to follow, not only to be a good person, but a good black child and a good black Christian child. Mm. And uh, I remember when we watched, when we went to see eighth grade mm -hmm. and you talked a lot about that. You, you, you there was a very little, not to say very little, but there was, a, there was a limit to what you could identify with. 
because it was it was a white suburban eighth eighth grader who talk talk about okay so miss kayla the mom i don't remember what happened to mom you know i could identify with that so she's being raised with dad and you know she's going through eighth grade angst but like when homegirl was like dad come on and like slamming her door like first of all even you don't sass like that right no and i don't do sass either i tell my students you know But, no, first of all, the fact that she could close the door, <laughs> like, that was huge. That she closed the door and, like, uh, that she could be like, Dad, come on. Like, you couldn't even, like, say, Dad, come on with your eyes. And remember, she she said, Dad, come on, after having her, her ear earbuds in at dinner. Wait a minute. Homegirl had earbuds on at dinner. Or at least, or was playing with her phone. Something that she, was like, you were like, no, nah, that doesn't happen. Wait. First of all, she has any kind of device on at dinner. And for her body language. Like, first of all, I couldn't, I couldn't slouch at the dinner table. I had to have my legs underneath the table. I had to eat a certain way. I had to be, I had to be proper. You know, whatever that means. Like, there was a certain way that you carried yourself, even if you were the only one at the table. So, Miss Kayla, with her earbuds in and her phone and, you know, being able to get up when she pleased or, you know... Decorate her own room. Yeah. No, we don't do that either. <laughs> and, I mean, I had I had some freedom in decorating my room, but, you know, you want to put no nails on my grandma's walls. Mm. That's not happening. So, it was just, you know, you just see the cultural differences and it's kind of funny... When you're watching it with a friend who is from a different background than right. you. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? And you're like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, and, when, and so when it came out and, and uh, so my students were interested in it, our experience, I was like, listen, go see it with like a multiracial group of friends. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's a slice of eighth grade, which is like lower New York suburbs, white people. Yeah. And it's not everybody's experience. We, sh- we should say that your experience is Queens, right? Yes. I was from Queens, and where I grew up in Queens, it's interesting because it's changing now. We know how the face of New York is always changing, or the face of neighborhoods are always changing. But my neighborhood where I grew up with my grandma, we had a diverse group of folks. And when I say diverse group of folks, I'm talking about racial and ethnically. You know, people weren't as open about their sexual orientation or their beliefs and things as they are when I was growing up. And now, you know, we're seeing that neighborhood changing. There's more island folks there. But it was still very much, you got driven around in a car. We did have buses, but I lived in a bus to train zone. I lived much closer to the suburbs of New York City than I did more of, like, more condensed buildings, densely populated areas. And so I was always yearning for a more diversified experience that extended past race, ethnicity. Like, I just wanted to feel New York. Mm -hmm. I guess deep down, I knew there was more outside of my home and my experiences, but I just, I didn't always see it. Right. And would you say that living with with grandma in that environment might have given you structure you didn't have and stability? Yeah. But maybe also contributed to your, like, being wound tight? Okay, so let me give you... An insight on a weekend, Serene's weekend as a kid. Right. So let's say you're a 12-year-old Serene or a 14-year-old Serene. Like, still, my mom was still alive. And so my mom is, or was, of Jamaican and Venezuelan descent. 
And so my Jamaican family, you know, Christian, but, you know, Christian. (laughs) (laughs) And I think having that island influence, you have more indigenous island culture and flavor and interpretation of of Christianity. Mm. So, you know, we didn't do Santeria, but my grandma might have some roots and have some scary stories and go see the psychic, my Jamaican grandma, where my grandmother, she's not, my southern grandma, she's not doing that. She's just no. going straight to Jesus. Right. So I would go to my maternal grandmother's house and we're doing the spider. We're listening to reggae. You know, you're doing all kind of floor work and... <laughs> For, like dancing, floors? no oh. dancing. Because <laughs> I thought, because I remember you saying like getting back to a typical weekend. Yeah, like uh, it's Saturday is like clean the house day, right? Yeah, but Saturday is clean the house day in both homes. Okay, okay. You're not gonna have a dirty home in the Jamaican home or the Southern home, mm-hmm. but you're gonna be listening to reggae. My grandmother, who is a woman of a certain size with um, big fourth grade boobs too, maternal grandmother. Yes, okay. she's not gonna have a bra. She's gonna have panties on. Okay, and she's just walking the house, and nobody is like knocking to come into the bathroom. Like everything is open. Whereas you go to my southern grandma's house, and you gotta wear a house coat, you gotta wear pajamas. First of all, if you wake up, you gotta go wash up, or put on your house coat, or change into your lounging around the house wear. And so it's always a very unique experience. If I spent Saturday with my mom's family, and then Sunday with my dad's family, mm. because you're like, okay. No, you don't dance like that here. You don't dance at all. <laughs> and then you go to my my you know my mom's mom's house, and they're like, "You're so stiff. You need to loosen up." You know. Yeah. So it was you know culture shock all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like two different worlds. Yeah. You mentioned before college being tough. Yeah. Because you had to make decisions. So you're coming from this background where. You have, uh, for lack of a better shorthand, some chaos going on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some instability. You get you get a little bit more stability, but still some some issues with <laughs> you know living in, in in the household with with your grandmother. So you get to college, and what happens? Yeah. So I just want to rewind. Like sure. I fought to go to LaGuardia High, which is a music and art school in New York City, mm-hmm. and it really opened my eyes because you had kids from all across New York City who came from different walks of life, literally every way you could imagine. And so it was my first time really coming across people from different religions, income levels, sexual orientations. And so, you know, mind you being raised in a home where homosexuality is wrong or you have certain perceptions about people who are white or people who are... You know, and I don't think my family meant to be that way, but it's just their experiences. And so I ended up going to high school and going, wow, there's a lot of other folks out there and there's a lot of other ways of being. And so when I went to college at St. John's, it was right near my house, you know, grandma's house. And it was, I was excelling in school, like at a 4.0 easily. And I say that not being, not bragging. It was just like, what else did I have to do, you know? And so I found myself in a space where like, I can't do this. And someone, I had a friend at the time who I had known from a childhood best friend. They had gone to a Catholic school together. And so she was at Stony Brook. And so I went for a weekend. I'm like, oh my God. So what was the, I can't do this? What couldn't you do? The continuation of high school, the continuation of being you know, a teenager, but a teenager who is not, who's no longer 
18, you're 19, about to be 20, and you're, you know, you're realizing that there's more to life, you know, there's more than life than just going to class, working your on-campus job, watching your, you know, soap operas and going home, you know, I was like, that's all I did. And so when I went to Stony Brook to visit, there was a party, there were people, like, people had freedom, they were defining the way they were living. They were making choices, good or bad. They were making choices. And that was appealing to me. So some of those choices that you said um, you had not had the chance to make. No, because you know what? Being being raised, and I think it's also the, the fact of my grandmother, my dad's mom, up until this day, does so much for me. And so when you have someone who took you in or did things for you, even with when they weren't compensated, even when no one said thank you, you know, you want to please them and you don't want to disappoint them. And so if my grandmother had said the sky is purple, I would say, okay. You know, like, mm. even if it wasn't, because one, it was cultural, and two, it's like, who am I to tell someone or talk back to someone who's really been an inspiration to me and really made my life better, you know? So I think... I never really questioned a lot of things or really looked to make other choices because I was just grateful. You know, I was grateful that I had the opportunity to live with my grandmother and have my aunts. But I think there comes a point where you're just like, oh, I need to, you know, there's more out there. Mm -hmm. and, and so Stony Brook, what, what, um, there's the party, people are making choices, they're defining themselves. What was Stony Brook like for Serene? So when I transferred in sophomore year, first of all, my grandmother gave me serious attitude. And I had to do everything in my power not to yell at her because I wanted to live, you know? Like, I didn't want... I did not want to disrespect my grandmother. But I, finally, she let me go. She let me go. And um, I struggled. Like, I struggled. I used to walk the campus at night crying because I had to decide what to eat for dinner. <laughs> you know, I never did that before. Yeah, yeah. Grandma cooked and you ate it. You know, like, that was it. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I struggled scholastically too. You know, uh, no one was waking me up to go to that eight fifteen class, and <laughs> I had a nine o'clock Monday class. I mean, I was a fucking drunk in college, but I was a I had a nine o'clock Monday class that I like barely attended. I had to uh, beg the professor to like, you know, please just uh, my grades a B. Let it just, you know, don't, you know, <laughs> waive your attendance policy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So nobody's waking you up for these eight, <laughs> eight fifteen classes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I and but I made it. Like I did it because um in college, even though I went to the party school, I really wasn't partying. Like I was taking twenty one credits. You know, I added that pressure on myself. And and work study too, right? Work study. I had an internship, externship, and I was also the youth council president of <laughs> the Mid Manhattan NAACP chapter. So you were doing a lot. I was doing a lot, but I mean, I feel like you find with anxious folks that you work best busy, and so if I was feeling uncomfortable you dive all the way in or you dive out. And so I was a, like a really all in kind of person. And so I struggled scholastically when I say that the classes that I could do well in because I did school so well, you know, for most of my life, I did well in. But like in philosophy, for example, uh, you had an A and B track. What? I had never known that you would strive for anything less than an A. But in philosophy classes at Stony Brook, the philosophy teacher knew that everyone wouldn't be able to keep up with. So explain what this A-B track is. Sure. So in philosophy classes, at least at Stony Brook, that's my only experience, 
there would be a syllabus for an A track if you wanted to strive for the A in that philosophy class. But if you're cool with a B, just do this. Yeah, but I wasn't cool. I mean, what's a B? Right, yeah. And so I had to, I struggled scholastically when I said, by saying like, I had, I was a B track student in philosophy, but I didn't know that, mm. you know, like I couldn't handle that with doing an internship, mm. externship, work study, you know, <laughs> youth right. council president. And so when you come face to face with an issue that you can't fall back on your, your old tricks in the bag, you know, you're, you, you can't go all in because you can't handle the ph- philosophical readings for the A track. So what'd you do? Well, I dropped it. I dropped the class and I cried. Mm over and over because I felt like a failure. Yeah. You know, I really felt like a failure. And then there was another time at a geology class and it was so dry. Mm. And, you know, I hope people can hear that. Like I'm a really upbeat person. And so I tried to pay attention. It was like, and then there's a rock. And it's like, I couldn't. And it's not like you can say in a 300 something seminar, like you're boring me, please do something else. Like there's no room for that. And so I got a C in that class and I cried. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think in the, in the end, I shouldn't say in the end, but do you think eventually these sort of smaller failures were a, a good thing? It sort of maybe pierced that myth of like, you're always going to have to be perfect. No, not in college. Like okay. I actually, when it was time for, I think when I finally came to terms with the fact that I possibly had, a, had an issue with anxiety and perfectionism was my senior year of college and I was on the track of going for clinical psychology for a PhD. Like, you know, I was thinking of doing that and I was under a minority access to research fellowship that paid for my tuition. And, you know, you had to do your own study. So I had done IRB and all that stuff and undergrad and it just didn't feel right. Like I was a people person and I didn't want to listen to audio tapes <laughs> or mm. get to the point where you are a principal investigator, but all you're doing is like writing the paper. You're not speaking to people. And that's mm. kind of what my experience was going that either clinical psychology or social psychology route. And so I, that was the first time I had ever seen a therapist that wasn't like school based, like, you know, a little group or something. And I really had an issue making decisions about what my future should be after college because I didn't know. And so, and you were supposed to know. Mm. That's at least how I felt. Sure. Yeah. A lot of people feel that way. You were supposed to know and I had no, and I didn't really have the tools to make those decisions. And so I think it took me in like, after I did my master's and I know we haven't gotten there and I then took another course and then tried another master's. You know, I was working full-time at a new school, working seven to seven, trying to manage a relationship that was long distance. I actually had to, for the first time, ask for an extension on the paper. I was like crying to this professor and she's looking at me like I'm, I'm mad. And she's like, why? You know, okay, you can get, a, get an extension. That was the first time I realized, I'm like, mad people are asking for extensions. I'm like, that was the first time. And I had to be like 25. Mm. I just thought people, everybody was ex- excelling. Everyone was doing well. So, no, I didn't learn. Make a long story short, no. In that... There is no long story short. That's what, <laughs> that's what we're here to hear your story. <laughs> yeah, the college, you know, I did not learn that, you know, people fail in college. People fail in life. I didn't learn that. I knew that other people failed in life, but not me. 
<laughs> you know? So what, what brings you to AmeriCorps? I just wanted to help people. And when I say, it sounds so cliche, but when, you know, you have, you have a professor who's willing to take you on as a research assistant after you're graduating college and saying, you know, pretty much you're a shoe in that you'll have a job. And then if I work with her, I'm more than likely going to get a recommendation for a PhD program in psychology. And I was just like, this isn't it. So I decided to apply for this AmeriCorps program and I got in and it was a great way to serve my city. So I had always been big on service. Like my, my dad and my mom were always giving back to the community. And so for the first time, I felt like I was on the ground with the people, you know, like I was, I was learning about people and their experiences, but I was also with them mm. and I was also giving back to my city. Right so then what, uh, what, Makes you decide, I'm, I'm going to try teaching. Mm. Uh, there was a little girl named Heaven uh, in the South Bronx. And myself and a, a colleague, we became teachers together, but we were both in that AmeriCorps group together. Had 19 young people from the South Bronx. And Heaven was in that group. And we just ran that week-long camp that was for, you know, New York City kids when they'd have that winter break, which I don't have right now, I'm salty, but like when they have that winter break and they really don't have anything else to do. And so we ran that camp like it was the best camp ever. We were in their same school, but as you know, my students would say, it was lit. Every moment we had the kids doing something. And so our theme was West Side Story and the Five Burrows. And we had the kids practicing. We so cool and I feel pretty and so on and so on. Like we just... We just had a ball. And whereas other camp counselors were saying, we don't know what to do with our kids. Can you give us coloring pages? Like we were asking, can we have 10 more minutes with our kids? They're rehearsing. They have a show on Friday. Like, you know, we were just doing. That's, that sounds like serene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were doing the most with our kids. And so I met them. I noticed on the last day before the show that Heaven wasn't there. So I asked her sister and I was like, you know, sister, where's Heaven? And she says, well, Heather, the, Heaven doesn't have a skirt to wear like all the other girls. To, for the performance and I was like no the girls are even wearing skirts like and I don't care get her here so I called mom and then I got to meet mom and mom says I uh I don't know who you are but my, my kid talks about you all the time and then I saw a little notebook where heaven had 72 tallies of how many times she had practiced little did I know that heaven had been a victim of abuse and she had had a bad case of psoriasis like really bad and so her esteem was low and, you know, mom said she just, she wouldn't open up. And she's like, all of a sudden I peek in her room and she's like dancing and singing. And she's talking about this counselor named Miss Serene. And she's like, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but like my kid, uh, I, my kid, I can't even believe she's on the stage performing. Like, and so I was like, oh, <laughs> there has to be something to this then. So then I applied for the New York City Teaching Fellows on the extended extended deadline at the last minute and it was because of that little girl <laughs> wow your first was your first gig hunts point my first gig for teaching yeah no it was in morsania that's the bronx right that's still the bronx yeah. um but that's the west side of the south bronx and you know what the, the kids were amazing amazing kids like the dopest kids you ever want to meet in really fucked up situation 
And so that was when, you know, my first year when my mom died and you would have a teacher before the late bell and after the late bell, there was no teacher. Like that's how rough it was. And so the school had been phased out and it used to be one whole school. And so the kids had solidarity, like the kids were together, but all these other adults are trying to say, oh, this is my school and this is my school and these are our rules. And the kids are like, yeah, fuck that. (laughs) This is our school. (laughs) And so, you know, I really got my first taste of like, you know, life isn't fair for everybody. And even though I had all these messed up situations growing up, I still knew school to be a place of comfort, teachers as a resource on multiple levels. And, you know, at school you learned. When I went to do that camp and then when I went to that school in Morrisania, yeah, I saw violence. I saw, you know, kids not having teachers. I saw... And it's, and I'm not to say like that, col- my colleagues there though, you know, hands down, I learned so much as a little 22, 23 year old, however old I was when I first started teaching, because they stuck together. It was rough, but everyone had their, each other's backs. So it wasn't a teacher. It was just like, it was just a fucked up situation. And so that was the first time that I realized that school, school doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Mm. It really doesn't. And, um... I fought tooth and nail to get out of there because I started developing, you know, typical issues that many teachers have when you're in a situation that you're, you're feeling like you can really fix when it's bigger than you. And so I started like walking and not feeling the floor, having trouble sleeping, feeling like something was holding me back in my sleep. You know, I, I'm glad I got out because I'm still teaching, but it was, it was Mm -hmm. tumultuous year. Yeah. And you were in uh, you were in two other schools that are similar in, in their situations, right? Yep, I was. And I think, you know, in trying, I'm so glad, you know, that we've met each other and I've met other folks like you who are really looking at structural inequality, really looking at systems and how they work and not work for folks because people weren't bringing that level of consciousness. And I feel like in a large part, people still aren't bringing that level of consciousness to what's going on in schools. You know, and so I always skipped around a lot because, you know, I'm not very good at keeping my mouth closed. Well, this is unjust. And I was used to telling parents, like, you know, I'm glad you're upset. If you're upset about me, my boss is around across the hall and you can complain. I appreciate you coming to me, but, you know, you deserve better. Your kid deserves better. This is your school. So, you know, needless to say, I got in trouble a lot. (laughs) And so, you know, I bounced around because, you know, nobody, nobody wants someone in their school who is going to tell folks who aren't supposed to achieve that you can achieve and this is yours Mm. do you think you saw any of young serene in some of these kids because you didn't have such a stable situation growing up yes and i still see that and so i always say that you know circumstances matter so if i just had my mom and like so many other kids They have a parent who's doing their best to be a parent, even if that best is really not good enough. Sometimes that's all they have. And that wasn't me. Like, I didn't just have my mom. Like, I had my mom and my grandparents and my aunts and my dad and my... Like, I had had a community. And for a lot of young people, I saw the same brilliance, quirkiness, you know, excitement, fear, you know, that I had growing up but without, with less outlets, you know? I think that's one of the reasons why I struggle in working in 
say more affluent areas where kids biggest issue is like will a parent buy them a toy or will they get to go to Starbucks or McDonald's and that was one of the reasons I didn't work in the area where I grew up in Queens we you know it wasn't a wealthy area but kids had families that were making a good living you know and they were trying to pretend to be something they weren't they were trying to be from a part of Queens that they weren't where there were kids trying to do their best to get out of there because all they want to do is have an opportunity like you so yeah I definitely I think to this day I put myself in I commute I've commuted two and a half hours yeah to work with certain children because yes I do see them in me and me and them so as you're you're having these experiences in these in these schools what's the turning point what's the click that that gets you to to go for this PhD program I was kind of burnt out honestly mm -hmm. so I was working at a school and I'm like I hope my advisor doesn't hear this <laughs> I was like either I'm gonna go to a PhD program or I'm gonna go abroad like I was gonna do something and so actually one of my close friends and colleagues told me about our program and I was like, all right, I'll apply. You know, let me see. I remember, you know, our our former program director saying, you know, you have to finish this. You know, you have to. And I was like, why is she saying that to me? But I guess, like, maybe maybe it came across that I was, like, trying this out. <laughs> but, yeah, I, it was kind of a, I guess I was thrusted into a decision. And a PhD was always in my mind, like I said, like, since I was young. But I, I felt like that was the time because... I needed a change, but mm -hmm. as a safeguard, school has always been that safeguard for me. Mm -hmm. So a PhD, while some other people are like, it's a big commitment. And now I know, yeah, it's a big commitment, <laughs> but school. We could do a whole podcast just on <laughs> our experiences in the last seven or eight years in the program. You know? But school has always been safe for me. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah that yeah, was my no, safety I, net. I, 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 I get that. I get mm -hmm. that part of it. Yeah. I, I've had similar experiences. Like, I, I, I've been on an academic calendar since I was in kindergarten. No. you know yes and i've always liked being a student i've always liked diving into things i've always liked learning I'm a, i feel comfortable mm -hmm. and sometimes it's it's i feel comfortable pleasing those you know teachers with you know good work and getting a pat on the head for it you know? right so, so uh let's talk a little bit about your your work where you where you're at in the program now what you're doing and how these experiences in these schools might have informed what you're pursuing now right so I had the opportunity to work with a mainly Central and South American first and second generation immigrant community. Mm -hmm. And when I say that the folks that I work with really revere education and educators and will like do anything for their kids to have a better opportunity, like, I knew that from my family and, but like, it's a newfound, like, whatever you need, teacher, we're going to do. Mm. And just seeing the plight that kids had to face in the school because they couldn't speak their home language, even though that's illegal and you can't tell people that they can't speak another language here. Uh, just seeing how kids felt restricted in their own neighborhood school, like in their own community, and like folks were coming from outside of the community and had more power to enforce the language kids spoke, the access they had to education, the access their family had to education and to opportunity. 
it just really struck a chord with me. And so as an intervention teacher and a special educator for those special kids who just aren't getting it the first time or the way they're supposed to get it, um, I really, I really um, just took to those students. And through those experiences, it led me to really be interested in language and language identity and how power and folks' immigration status, socioeconomic status, really influences how we do school and how teachers do their work with kids and families that are deemed less than sufficient, you know? But basically, I just think that I was working with a largely Spanish-speaking population of children who were either heritage speakers of Spanish mainly or newly arrived students and they really felt like they were disempowered in speaking their home language and acquiring their education even though it wasn't put on paper. And so I often felt like although I was building a good community in my classroom and with families, you know, and you know, it's that good teacher that they can talk with, I wasn't really doing anything about their plight. Like I wasn't really I really wasn't really advocating or doing activist work that could really change the circumstances for those students and other people and even myself as their teacher. Like I was, I was also not liberating myself. And so right now I'm interested in pursuing research around teachers who would call themselves activists for students like the kids I used to teach in that predominantly um, Central and South American Spanish speaking community. And there's some teachers who are doing really dope things especially in the current political climate mm, where yeah. people are afraid to go to doctors. They're afraid to leave their homes. You know, they're afraid to go out to the grocery store. You know, I just, I want to highlight folks who had more, who have and have had more courage than I have in really changing the material being for people. Mm. So uh, this is a, a academic question. How do you feel that this is going to contribute to, to what conversation? I think most, mostly, especially now, still working as a teacher in a setting that is new to me and seeing how it's being bombarded with a very narrow idea of what schooling could be like for black and brown kids who are from the Bronx in many areas where I started teaching in and now coming full circle and going back to some of those same areas I just hope to give teachers room and the space to say we know what we're doing we're doing it well and we need to do more of this mm. I think that we've seen that teachers have been sidelined and then teachers who are being highlighted who are teachers of the year are kind of marching to that same drum that we need to keep everything one size fits all. And and those kids that I really love and care about would still think that they couldn't speak their language and they couldn't be themselves and they would still be fearful. And I just think we need to hear from people who are walking the walk and talking the talk. Right on. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to play this game with folks. I, I'm not, it's, I don't know how it's coming across in the first couple episodes, but is there a, is there a book, a movie, an album, a song, a play, you know, that uh, has spoken to you or that you want to amplify something that, that uh, really speaks to, to who Serene is? Yes. 
I mean, I can talk about the book first. And it seems like all my choices right now are controversial. So, like, I love Juno Diaz. Juno, why you do it, man? So, oh, that's right. He ran into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde really, really changed my life. How so? Well, Oscar was a straight-up nerd. I could, I could vibe with that. And I'm really trying to change around nerd culture and speak about it in a different facet where you're not just oh the out you know on the outskirts but Oscar spoke to me because he was an outcast and he was always outside looking in but the story was all about him you know and that kind of felt like yeah that's that's me <laughs> Juno Diaz was the first fiction author that used footnotes mm. so it was a, a true historical fiction uh novel and so he had me really fascinated with um, Dominican history and politics. And I just loved the way, I loved his artistry. I just loved how he crafted that book. And I really identify with the main character. And now again, my girl, Erica Badu, she's my girl, but she messing up. Erica was good. And Oh, didn't she like uh, defend R. Kelly or some shit yes. like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I love Erica too much to cancel her. Okay. But obviously with my intro choice, um, but her Orange Moon album, which was got me through that time in college and really put me on to like music that has meaning. So mm. that album has tons of Egyptian mysticism, tons of 5% Nation references, tons of, you know, pro-African, pan-African, black loving yourselfness, mm. you know, that spoke to me. That's still one of my favorite albums. If I had to pick one that I could play on repeat, mm. it would be that one because it had me researching music and history. And, you know, she she made relationships with self and relationships with a partner seem real to me. So tell me uh, about the outro music. Ledisi? Ledisi. Ledisi. All right. So (laughs) underrated. (laughs) She is so underrated and she's really just like a queen. And so the song that I picked, All Right, really sums up my experiences. You know, she says, I can't even buy that dress on sale, but it's all right. (laughs) And she says, you know, she talks about not really having money. But I guess she's, you can say she's talking about a partner, like loving someone else. But you can just say, you know, you can interpret it as loving someone else or loving yourself and saying that it's all right. You you're you go through lots of changes, um, but it's okay. It's all right. And you keep on keeping on. And I just wanted to highlight someone and you really pushed me to make sure that folks are getting exposure. I hear you. Go ahead. <laughs> and so, you know make sure that artists are getting exposure and I appreciated that and I feel like Lettucey like she could just blow the house down but the message of like you're gonna be alright and and I and I and I appreciate that it kind of that's like a theme song for your life <laughs> for real <laughs> Serene this was uh, this was a, a lot of fun I'm really glad that you you decided to end your long day and start your weekend uh, recording a, a podcast with me uh, thanks a lot my pleasure. This life can make me so confused, but it's all right. Living day by day, I feel so used, that ain't right.
So that's my interview with Serene. I thought it went well. I hope you enjoyed it. I felt very present and in the moment doing that interview. Everybody's got to make me a promise not to tell my advisor the time I'm spending on this podcast. Hashtag GED to PhD, but hashtag procrastinate. After this episode posts, I'm going to start spacing them out a little bit more. I wanted to give folks a few episodes to see what I had in mind for the podcast. But I have other things to attend to in my life, including that PhD work that I'm slacking on. So expect a new episode probably every two weeks. Go to BrianTalksToHumans.net. It's got my email and all the social media on it, including a button where you can donate through Patreon to help me offset the cost of the equipment that I got. Okay, that's it for now. Stay human. Because the streets are alive with the sound of boom, Can I hear it once again? Boom, Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, every box got a right to be booming. Because the streets are alive with the sound of boom, Can I hear it once again? Boom, Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, every flower got a right to be blooming. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the